Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. Every business is in some way a people business. From Silicon Valley to the restaurant down the street, every business relies on groups of people working together toward a common cause. That's no easy task. While the world around us has evolved into a high-tech, interdependent matrix, our individual software is largely the same as it was 10,000 years ago. We are social, emotional animals balancing a need to fit in with a desire to stand out. This is a show that explores individual and interpersonal dynamics, helping you become your best self while making the most of your business and the people in it. If you enjoy this episode, make sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Enjoy the show. In this episode, I'm joined by Caitlin Lyons, founder and CEO of Delightful Movement Coaching. Caitlin is a talent development coach and consultant who specializes in creating business impact through workplace well-being. She helps stressed, overworked, burned-out professionals restore energy, enthusiasm, and joy. After 10 years in Fortune 300 organizations as a strategic advisor, internal consultant, and project manager, she excelled at challenging, high-visibility, high-pressure projects. She also burned out. Now, she helps hard-charging individuals, leaders, and teams learn professional self-care and redesign the way they work so they can sustain healthy, high performance. This is a a very timely conversation in my mind, uh, coming on the heels of, or, or still in the middle of, you could argue, the coronavirus pandemic. And on the heels of the Olympics, where uh, Simone Biles really brought mental health to the forefront, and others like Michael Phelps and other athletes have have really talked about and tried to normalize mental health and and self-care. Caitlin gets into what burnout is, what causes it, how to catch yourself on the spectrum before things get too bad and, and unmanageable, and really gives a lot of strategies about how to address this to create a long-term life of achievement in, in the ways that we want to achieve. Often not about doing more. It's not about tips and tricks. Oftentimes it's about finding meaningful ways to do less. I think there's a lot in here for everybody, even if you're not burned out or on the edge of burnout. I think there's a lot of good stuff in here that everybody can take away in addressing their own mental health, and it will help everybody make more progress towards the goals that, that we all have. Without further ado, here is Caitlin Lyons. And we are live. Caitlin, welcome to the show. Very excited to have you on and talk about stress and burnout today. I am so delighted to be here, O'Brien. Thank you so much for having me. This is an interesting topic. We were talking a little bit before and, and we've prepped for this and I, I think it's going to be fun. I think it's very relevant. We're coming off of, I don't even say, want to say coming off of because we've, we've still got the Delta variant out there that's catching up. We're recording this end of July in 2021. But we are opening up a little bit and we're coming off of almost 18 months of being locked inside and digital work for a lot of us and stress and burnout are are real things. So I want to maybe start at the beginning here, Caitlin, how does one become a burnout coach and what is a burnout coach? A burnout coach is, in my case, someone who helps people recover from burnout and put in place as well-being practices to make sure that they don't get there again. And in terms of how you become a burnout coach, I 
didn't even know that that was a thing. And I actually call myself a well-being coach because burnout right describes the pain point or the problem, what people are experiencing and what they need help out of. And so I usually talk about myself as being an executive well-being coach because that's what I'm helping people create is a life where they feel energized and whole and well in all aspects of their life, including work. I like to kind of define some terms up front here. So what is burnout right off the bat? There are so many different definitions of burnout. The World Health Organization defines it as severe chronic job stress that has not been mitigated or managed. So that's sort of the official technical definition. My own personal definition of burnout that I think is a little more human is burnout is a state of self-neglect where you've given too much for too long without getting what you need to adequately restore yourself physically, mentally, and emotionally. So it's sort of like this state of continuous depletion without shoring up your energy and getting your tank refilled. And it's actually, it's really interesting. I like to think about burnout is actually sort of this final defense mechanism that your body and brain put out. It's like you've endured too much and it's like your body unplugs you for you because you have not been unwilling to unplug yourself, if that makes sense. It's sort of like your body goes, I can't take anymore. We're done. We're out. Whether you so want to, to or not. Is it fair to say that burnout then is sort of the end point of stress? Yes. Yes, it is. And that's actually a really great point, O'Brien. So there's a distinction between stress and burnout. And burnout is really the end result of chronic, very long-term stress. And usually a pretty high level of stress that's been ongoing in someone's life. And so someone who's stressed is definitely feeling probably anxiety, probably feeling lower emotions, but they're still coping. They're still going through the motions. They're still trying to surmount the struggles or the problems that they're facing. But somebody in burnout is sort of at the point where they're just, they've given up. Like their situation feels hopeless. They're not really willing to. It just feels like kind of like, why bother? So you'll see somebody who previously, maybe even a few months prior, was really still giving their all, suddenly can't give anything at all. So what are the symptoms? I think you kind of hit on a couple there, but Mm -hmm. what are the symptoms of burnout? Yeah. So this is coming directly from Christina Maslach, who wrote The Truth About Burnout. And she's one of the leading researchers in the field. And she and her team defined three major dimensions. You could call them symptoms, if you will, of burnout. So these are like the telltale signs. Like, how do you know if you're burned out? You are going to exhibit one or more of these three dimensions. So there's exhaustion. I think that's the one most of us think about and can identify with. And it's more than just feeling tired. It's a tired that it's like a level of fatigue that's so deep. You just feel like you can't get out from under it. And it seems like no amount of rest really allows you to feel energized again. So exhaustion is usually the most common symptom, exhaustion that doesn't go away with a normal amount of rest or vacation. There's disengagement is the second dimension. And that's this feeling of like you're disengaged from work and life, whereas you might've been had a lot of zest for life before, suddenly you just kind of feel apathetic and numb about things. 
maybe before you were really engaged and excited about your work and now you just don't have any motivation. That's the second dimension. And then the third dimension is ineffectiveness. So this is where people just start to really notice that their ability to accomplish and achieve is vastly diminished. So whereas it may have taken you an hour to complete a task before, suddenly it takes you an entire day. And even sometimes even the simplest tasks start to feel really, really challenging to accomplish. So exhaustion, disengagement, ineffectiveness are the three. And some people have all three. Some people have one. Some people have two. Just depends on the individual. Going back to like, this is the end point of stress. I think, you know, there's a continuum that kind of ends with complete and total breakdown and burnout. I had read Adam Grant's article. I don't know if it was New York Times or Wall Street Journal or wherever he posted it, but it was on languishing. Yes. And it seems like, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on this, but you know, it seems like you kind of have stress, like prolonged stress, and then you get into maybe periods of languishing where some of these symptoms that you just talked about, exhaustion, just disengagement and ineffectiveness maybe start to creep up. And then as those build up and compound, you get into various phases of total burnout. Is that a fair sort of look at the continuum or how do you think about his comments on languishing? On languishing. And, and you know, Brian, as you're saying, it's, it's kind of like almost like, how do you know where to place yourself? Because I'm yeah. guessing is kind of where you're getting, what you're getting at there is like, well, how do I know exactly what I'm experiencing? Is it languishing? Which to me, I've read that article and I'm very familiar with it. Languishing as he lays out, it's not quite, total burnout. But yeah. there is some overlap, right? Yeah. But you're not quite what you'd call healthy either. Exactly. So, yeah. It's like that that middle yeah. phase where it's like the best way is it's kind of like, eh, everything's fine. Yeah. It's sort of like this, meh, it's okay. Like it could yeah. be better. It could be worse. It's sort of this in-between space. And I think, you know, there's a lot of different kinds of like dysphorias, this sort of, and, you know, another thing that comes up a lot is depression. There's a lot of overlap between depression and the symptoms of depression and the symptoms of burnout. And a lot of people who experience burnout do also experience depression. And so to answer your question, languishing, I think, is a prior state it, and could be sort of a signal to someone, oh, I might need to take some action here to make sure that this doesn't continue on and become something more serious and more severe. Because true burnout in its final stages is very severe and very serious, and it takes a long time for people to come back from it. So I think languishing is a really great, if you can see that it's starting to happen, is a great place to pause and get some support and make some changes so that it doesn't continue on. I want to put a pin in that and come back to it and talk about those interventions. But I think first, like talking about this continuum and talking about depression. So let's say you get to the end, you know, you've made it all the way through, you've just gone and gone and gone and gone, run and run and run. What does the final stage of burnout look like? Like, is it just that you give up and you just are totally apathetic or are there some like real health consequences or like, what's Mm -hmm. the final stage look like? Yeah, both those. And everyone's situation is unique, of course, but a lot of times from a, just a symptomatic, physical, mental, emotional standpoint, a lot of times what people are experiencing is headaches, 
muscle pain and tension, a lot of gastrointestinal problems, a lot of sleep disruption. So at the physical body level, that's what's happening. In the mental space, they might be feeling depression or may actually have true diagnosable depression, anxiety, frustration. Some people in burnout are really angry. And a lot of times people find it becomes harder and harder to regulate negative emotion. That's another hallmark. A lot of the clients I work with just say, you know, I used to be such a positive person and I feel like I'm so negative now. And it's not their fault. It's just that the brain, what we know about burnout, the brain, your cognitive functioning actually declines when you're in a, in a space of burnout. And mm. in terms of what it feels like, my own experience is it feels it's interesting. The term burnout, it was coined in 1974 by Dr. Herbert Freudenberger. And I believe as the story goes, the idea of burnout came from like, like rocket engines that are burned up and there's like nothing left. Like everything's literally burned out and there's no fuel left. You got nothing left to give. Exactly. And that, so that is the pervasive feeling. It's like, you're, there's just, you may want to keep going. And it's like, you really have this realization that you have hit rock bottom. There is nothing left to give. And it's kind of like, you're like dead, but alive in a way. Some people explain it that way. Like all the flame, like the flame's gone out, it's extinguished. There's no joy left. You And you just don't feel like yourself. I think that's one of the saddest parts about seeing people in burnout is that they don't, they feel like a shell of them, their former selves. So yeah, that's kind of the feeling state of it. Awesome. And, and thank you for kind of walking through all the different elements of it, because, you know, as I think about this, one of the reasons I wanted to sort of talk about that full continuum of it is the stigma that still is attached to any kind of mental health issues. And there's the outside stigma, right? That you don't want to be judged by others, but there's also your, the internal stigma of like, I don't want to be a, the type of person that breaks down, or I don't want to be the type of person who has to ask for help. I'm the type of person who fill in the blank, who burns the midnight oil. I'm the type of person who goes the extra mile, who gets it done. The stories we tell ourselves are so powerful in then creating our actions and keeping us maybe in certain behaviors when we need to let go of them. And it just seems to me like the first step is if you can really place yourself on the continuum that allows you to sort of define where you are and then be really honest about how to work your way back to a state of full mental health. Does that make sense to you? That makes total sense. And so, yeah, I mean, as we're talking through these distinctions, it's not about getting it right. It's about helping people know where they are so they can get the appropriate help they need. And I work with people along the full spectrum. And, you know, I work with people who are in the earlier stages of just chronic stress. And it's really gratifying to work with those people because we're catching it before it turns into true, total, final stage burnout. So it's, yeah, it's, I think it's really helpful to know where you are. And to your earlier, very important point around dissolving this stigma that exists. I remember at the time I burned out in my corporate environment, it was 2017 and people weren't talking about burnout the way they are now. I didn't even know that what was happening to me had a name and that it was called burnout. All I knew was that 
and for the people who are listening, some people may really identify with this. I used to be, you know, my whole identity was built around work and achieving great results for my employer. And I took a lot of pride in my energy and my tenacity. And in the final stages of burnout, to have nothing left to give was really horrifying and scary to me because it felt like the thing that I was known for was suddenly gone. And so, and there was just so much, I just felt so alone and so ashamed. And so if anybody's like listening to this now, I just, what I wish I knew then that I would say now is it's not your fault and there's nothing wrong with you. What I know now is that we are all human beings and we all, every single one of us has limits and capacities and we just have to learn to take care of ourselves and be good stewards of our energies and our bodies and our minds. And everybody has different different limits and different capacities and responds to them differently. And some of that is genetic, not up to you. So yeah, just a lot of encouragement for anybody who's feeling the hurts and the stigma. Yeah. Well, and I think knowing that there is a spectrum out there just makes it easier for people to say, like, oh, yeah, I'm at this point on the spectrum. And it makes it harder to say, well, that's, you know, that's not really what I'm facing because it's a spectrum. It's not, you don't have to fit 100% of the category for burnout or 100% of the category for stress or for languishing. It's like, okay, you're heading into languishing. You're heading into burnout. You can be anywhere on that spectrum. And really, we all are somewhere on that spectrum. If we're working, or if we're living a daily life or taking care of a family, like we're all at some place on that spectrum. And so to say like, oh, well, no, I'm not, I'm, you know, that's not me. It's like, no, it's all of us. It's just a matter of where you happen to be. And if you're in a great, healthy place, God bless you, go get after it. But totally, <laughs> you know, if you're not, that's okay to recognize too. Like, oh, whoop, we're slipping down the spectrum a little bit. Now we got to catch it, do some things to get back. I just think it makes it more accessible. At least it seems in my mind to make it more accessible. I like your metaphor of a spectrum and that it's what I'm appreciating about that is there's a fluidity to it and we're never, we're never stuck in a space. It's dynamic and it's going to change as we move through different seasons in life. And it's really just about knowing there's no judgment around it, right? It's just, where are you and what kind of support and help do you need based on where you are? And I hope through the people I work with, my hope for them is that they can get very attuned to noticing when they need help and what kind of help they need. Because my observation is that usually, and if you're wondering where I am, where am I on the spectrum? My observation is that usually people are overly optimistic about where they are, or sometimes in denial about where they are. So people I think are not always great at placing themselves. Until they, you know, and I think that's what's great about working with a therapist or coach is they can help in the placement on that spectrum and help you navigate from where you are. But yeah, people tend to be a little overly optimistic about where they are. Like I said before, you know, we all tell ourselves a story about ourselves. It's hard to admit that it is that we need help. So let's talk, let's move to interventions, right? So let's do it. I guess, where would you like to start? Should we start at the low end of the spectrum or should we start all the way at the burned out and work our way back? I mean, I think actually let's start at the final stages of burnout, the end of the spectrum. Let's start there and work backwards. All right. You're totally burned out. What do you do? How do you get out? How do you recover yourself from a full burnout? 
You said it was hard and it takes a long time. It can. Yeah. I think honestly, in full honesty, it took me well over a year, I would say, to feel back to my normal self again, even working with both a therapist and a coach. So for anybody out there who feels needy, (laughs) I had a therapist and a coach. So I think the number one thing, if you are truly in the final stages of burnout, I'm very wary to give people a list of things to go do. And I think when you're in that space, you don't need more things to do. You need to take, you need to just stop. To me, the most important thing is to recognize what's happening and to pause and just stop and pull back to look at your life and what's driving the burnout and to just get some perspective on it and to identify what's really driving the burnout and start to make some very intentional choices about what to shift. And you and I are both big fans of essentialism, the book, The Essentialism. And so I think I really like to take an essentialist approach for people who are in burnout because they have such little capacity and energy. So it's really important that it the solution doesn't feel overwhelming. But yeah, really pulling back and almost disconnecting. I really encourage people to to take some time and space in whatever way is available to them. Not everybody can take a month off, but could you regularly schedule a day off or could you take yourself on a little retreat, an overnight retreat? Those are some of the things I started to experiment in my own burnout journey that really helped me a lot to reconnect with myself. What does the exercise look like of getting that organized? What does it look like to get that organized? Because it's one thing just to say, okay, I'm going to do less and like, I'm just not going to go do this thing anymore, or I'm not going to say yes to those types of things anymore. Great. Okay. That's going to help. And then you're still in the same patterns and you're still burned out. Like, do you recommend journaling? Do you, is there a way to organize mm. that? Like, what does maybe not the exercise, but what does at least one exercise look like to help somebody really understand what they're doing in their lives and where they could cut back? The number one thing that I see. So the number one cause, I would say the number one cause I see of burnout, if we were to just put a pin in one thing is work overload. So I, I, maybe two things. I would say work overload and lack of control. Um, and that's also shows up in research as well. That's what they've shown is. So in a sense, it's simple. If you're overloaded at work, you need to reduce your demands, right? So it depends on the person and what their particular situation is. But some of the things that I encourage my clients to do is, for example, bringing their workload down is asking for support. So can they actually say, I have more than I can actually really do. Now, that's not something a lot of people are comfortable doing straight out of the gate, but ultimately that's a really great thing to do is to start to become aware of what's actually realistic for them to do realistic amount of work, you know, realistic work week, 40 or 50 hours, let's say. That's what I find most of my clients are working with. I need to be present at work for like 35 to 50 hours a week. So trying to right-size the workload is one thing. Another thing I do is I really encourage my clients to disconnect from work, to have a very clear disconnect point. I think that's one of the biggest struggle points for most people is, especially in this work-from-home era. So one of the ways that I 
help my clients disconnect is to ask them to create an end of workday ritual. So it's a very clear point. This doesn't have to be time consuming, five to 10 minutes, where it is very clear that you are unplugging from work. And this allows people to mentally disconnect. It's not so much that people can't step away from their desk and leave the room, but they're carrying their work with them. And so I like to just take them through the practice of designing your own end of workday ritual. And part of it's a mental disconnect. So it's just kind of finishing up for the day. Like what are the tasks that are still open? Any of those open tabs in your brain and making a plan for them so that your brain can kind of lay them to rest. For some clients, if they're working on hard problems that they're trying to solve, I might just have them write it down, like write down the problem and know that you can pick it up, right? This is where I'm going to pick up when I start tomorrow. And then I have them just plan their day, their next day. Like what are the top, what's your most important task or two for the next day? And then have them actually do something physical to disconnect, something embodied. So I have some clients that do a savasana, which is a yoga practice where you just literally lay your body down on the ground and breathe for a couple minutes. So that's like total surrender, right? You're not yeah. in the space of doing anything, you're kind of letting it all go. I have that would a, client, be a great reset. Yeah. Right. Like it's just a very clear, like, oh, I'm not upright at my computer anymore. I'm really like totally changing my physical body space. I have some clients that go for a walk, like they shut their laptop and they are right out the door. They're leaving the space. I have some clients who do a little end of day dance. They turn on a music and so they have a song, kind of a ritual song that cues it's the end of the day. And then they go about their evening. So Song cues can be incredibly powerful so at good. primers. Yeah. You're essentially priming so your brain to relax. Yeah. So do whatever, you, whatever your brain needs and it needs to be authentic to the person. So those are three very distinct individuals I'm thinking of, totally different personalities, but choose something that works for you and that allows you to really feel like you're truly walking away and your brain feels like, okay, there's nothing for me to work on right now. I'm leaving yeah. it behind because we need that recovery time. That's where burnout starts to creep in is when people don't get that adequate recovery time. So I just can't emphasize enough how important it is to choose an end time to your workday and to hit it as regularly as you can. Yeah. I love those. The closing out the tabs thing I think is so important too. I don't do that as much, but hearing you say that I may have to start that practice because I find like I'll go to bed and whatever open tab is still there will start running in my head. And if I uh -huh. say, oh, I'll remember that tomorrow, one, usually I don't. But even if I do, I find that I'm trying to remember it and that keeps me up. Whereas uh -huh. if I just open my phone and send myself an email with whatever the thought is in the subject line, I roll back over and I nod off to sleep. And it's just like, it, it's closed the, the browser. And I, I find that very helpful, but doing it, not even waiting till you get into bed, but doing it proactively, I think would be really helpful. The other interesting thing is talking about music. There's a, a gentleman named Josh Waitskin, who has been on the Tim Ferriss show, his podcast a couple of times that I've listened to, and I've read his book on learning. And he was the real life subject of the movie Searching for Bobby Fisher. He was a child chess prodigy and then reinvented himself as a martial arts champion and is now reinventing himself as a master surfer. And he's also a black belt in jujitsu and a couple other things. But he's like, 
he actually consulted with people on how to learn. And when he was, he was doing what's called push hands, which is a form of martial arts and he was competing and he had a routine that he would work through to get himself primed. And it was a physical routine, but it also involved listening to, in his case, eye of the tiger. And he would listen <laughs> to that. And then right when that was done, he would go. And there was a scenario where he was competing abroad. He was in the finals and the local referees were trying to mess with him. And so they, he was asleep, taking a nap, thinking he had three hours before his competition. And they woke him up and said, you have to be on the mat in five minutes. And he got up, did a, an abbreviated version of his physical warmup while listening to eye of the tiger and went out in one. And he said he was so keyed up when he got on the mat from going from full sleep to so keyed up because he listens to that song. And I've heard interviews with him where he says, even now that song comes on and he'll have, like, he'll start to sweat because his, like his adrenaline will just rush so high because he had so ingrained that priming into his brain that he could perform at any moment, as long as he had two minutes to listen to that song or even 30 seconds just to hear the beginning of it. <laughs> and what you're saying is essentially the opposite of that. It's exactly. it's using the same mechanism, but using it to shut down and relax. That's and it. so if you do those things for long periods of time, like if you're consistent with those types of routines, they actually do have like a neurological effect on bringing your stress hormones down. That was my long story to say that this stuff works. <laughs> I love it. And I think, yeah, I love it. And that, yes, there's that kind of Pavlovian response. And that's exactly what we're going for. Like just training yeah. your, it's almost like this, like our brains are brilliant and they're also really unhelpful to us at times. And so it's like, we're trying to give ourselves something that overrides it really quickly. It's like, oh, there's my song. It's time to go restore my brain and body now. Right. And that's really it. I mean, in a nutshell, the the solve for burnout is the long-term solve is helping people learn how to take care of themselves and know what they need to be at optimal energy and performance and to attune. Oh, when am I getting too stressed? When do I need to do something different? And so it's really about helping people to attune to themselves and to know to have these practices like this. To ha- that allow them to take good care of themselves. And so learning to disconnect from work is just one of many practices that people can put in place to take care of their well-being and not get to a place of burnout again. Yeah. So going back to disconnecting, mm-hmm. well, one quick question I want to insert here first. So mm-hmm. there's disconnecting and there's numbing. Yeah. And I talk with my wife about this a lot too. And she and I are both guilty of it at certain times, but there's disconnecting and recharging yourself and there's disconnecting and numbing yourself out, which Mm -hmm. in my experience, the numbing has no recuperative value, whether it's YouTube or, you know, (laughs) alcohol or whatever, where you just go and you just want to numb yourself. You're not actually restoring yourself. You're just turning off the negative for a period of time, but you, you're not depleting the tank. Right. The negative. So what's the difference to you and how, when you do talk about disconnecting, how does somebody figure out how to maybe get out of numbing and be, I'll call it productive disconnecting? Oh, I like that productive disconnecting. It's such a good distinction and nuance and really important because a lot of people, when I talk to people, sometimes they'll say, well, you know, I am taking time away from work 
but they're not necessarily doing it in ways that re-energize them. And that is yeah. such a crucial part of it. They're getting hammered during the day and then they have a hangover the next day. And <laughs> yeah. now they have an extra day of email inbox and a hangover and it's just worse. That's it. Or even, or even mild, they're, they're doing, you know, they're, they're watching Netflix or they're reading books, but they're still really mentally engaged. I find a lot of people are doing things that maybe even are pleasurable for them, but they may still be really mentally engaged or not getting the recharge that you mentioned that they really, really need. And so I think about disconnect. So in coaching, coaching is all about self-awareness and connecting people to themselves. So the way I like to think about disconnect versus numbing is numbing is something that takes you away from something that's not pleasant to you, right? So for instance, work or something that's, you know, exhausting and just takes you out of the work, but it doesn't really send you anywhere. It's just kind of neutral almost. Or in some cases, it could actually be depleting you. If you're drinking too much alcohol or watching too much Netflix, it could be really draining you. Disconnect, productive disconnect for me is always getting you closer to yourself somehow or to a higher power you subscribe to that. So disconnecting to become closer to yourself is very intentional. So I find it's not just disconnecting to re-energize yourself and to understand, well, what are the activities that for me really fill my tank back up? But it's also disconnecting to know yourself better, to understand yourself better, to get used to tuning in and knowing what you need to learn to listen to yourself, learn to like hanging out with yourself by yourself, you know, alone. When Dr. Freudenberger first coined the term burnout and wrote his book, he said that the number one remedy for people in burnout was time alone by themselves in a very intentional, productive way. And I thought that that was really profound. There's a lot of things going around around what you should do if you're burned out. And that's not one that people often talk about it. And that was absolutely true for me. And I find that to be very true with my clients, like finding ways to disconnect from work or relationships or responsibilities and commitments and to just be you aside from any role or responsibility, just kind of empty, spacious time, but very nourishing time. Yeah. Take yourself on a date. You could. Yeah. Yeah. And it manifests in different ways for all different clients. Some clients love to like sit and just listen to music. Some love to go for long walks. It's totally unique what helps people get into a space where they really genuinely feel connected with themselves and that they're not just numbing out the problem. Like, oh, I'm actually in a relationship with myself. I mean, it sounds kind of corny to say it that way, but that's like the best way to keep burnout from happening again is to have that that level of self-attention. We're so used to tuning to the needs of everyone else, right? And everything in our environment. And we often forget ourselves. So I would say the biggest remedy for burnout is just attending to yourself. That age old, put your oxygen mask on first. (laughs) Yeah, amen. One of the things that I have read a lot too is the impact that being in nature can have. And even if you're in in an urban environment, walking down a tree-lined street or going to a park, there is something about nature that actually drops cortisol levels and lowers stress in a measurable way. Yes. 
I'm a huge fan of that. And I think that's one of the easiest ways is just to ask yourself, where's my favorite place to be in nature or what elements of nature really light you up or feel engaging to you and to find ways to surround yourself with that, I think is a great way to disconnect in a very healthy way. Yeah. Supposedly even having plants in your office really helps. Yes. I have Um, read that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Also going outside is supposedly really healthy for your eyes. Because it, yes. it helps flex your eyes to see long distances and helps with nearsightedness and, and things like that. I found that to be really interesting. Talking about detachment, one, one more question about detachment. So mm-hmm. a big issue for people who are burned out is that the reason they got burned out is because they don't have an off ramp. Mm-hmm. It's coming out of a fire hose and there's no way to step out of the spray of the fire hose. So how do you help your clients build that off-ramp for themselves? Like, how do you help them structure a way out? And I mean, maybe permanently, but not necessarily. How do you guide them to disconnect? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. And I'll actually start by saying, I've watched multiple clients tell me they wanted to quit their jobs and then they decided not to because they were able to redesign the way that they lived and worked so that they didn't need to. That can be part of the quote-unquote off-ramp. I think that the hard thing... So here's my answer to that question. Yes, it is going to... For most people, it is going to feel impossible. Like there is no off-ramp here. Like how am I going to get out of the space I'm in? And the hard reality is that if we don't stretch to build one, it will get built for us. And usually in a way that's not pretty bad for our health and our long-term results that we're trying to get for our lives, right? So like this is one where it's just, it's hard to say, but if you are really feeling the severe impacts, if you are really truly in burnout or headed there, something has to shift. And usually it's a pretty big stretch. So for me, I will give you a very practical example. And this has happened for some of my clients. I actually took a medical leave under the recommendation of my physician. And that was probably one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in my life, but it was available to me. And that was what allowed me to start the process of recovery. You know, I did a lot of other things before that. I tried a lot of things, but nothing was really enough. So I would say the off-ramp is probably similar to where earlier we were saying, generally people are over-optimistic about where they are in the spectrum, people are generally over-optimistic too about what it's going to take to recover. So if you can take some time and space, take it. A lot of people don't realize that they have FMLA or benefits available to them where they could take an unpaid medical leave. Not possible for everyone, but it's something I certainly recommend. So that's a really concrete example, but I would say I would advise people to think about what they really need and like, what do you really truly need? Not just like the minimum viable possibility, but what would actually help you to make a step change? And when you're in that crazy busy, that like, oh my gosh, like everything's just spinning and overwhelming. It's very hard to have, you know, your cognitive function is usually impaired. It's really hard to get clarity about how to move forward. And that's the reason to take the step back and the pause and the time away and the disconnect so that you have space to think clearly about what to do. Because I like, 
that was something that was very frustrating for me. I couldn't dig myself out of the space of burnout because I just didn't have, I didn't have any reserve. I didn't have any gas left in my tank to be able to design anything. So like, number one is like, get yourself the space and energy you need. And I will reiterate what you said earlier, which is that book essentialism is a great tool and there are some great exercises in there and how to organize your own thoughts around this and to really be honest with yourself around where you're spending your time and where you have opportunities to create some off-ramps, to scale things down, to figure out what is essential and let the other stuff go. How did you reframe the story in your head around who you were and and what it meant to be successful, you know, or maybe you didn't reframe all of that. I imagine there was a point where you had to come to grips with the fact that the way you thought about yourself before needed to change. What was that process like internally for you, if you're willing Hmm. to share that? I am. That's such a good question. You know, going through burnout, I, I will say burnout can be a gift in disguise. I found that it was a really a chance for me to step away from the life I've cre- I'd created and think about what a meaningful life really looked like. I definitely had a successful from the outside life at the time I burned out. And um, so I guess the story I rewrote was my identity, my identity. And I think a lot of people who burn out, and there's a lot of debate about if burnout is an individual problem or an organizational problem, I think it's both. But I think a lot of people who have a tendency to burn out have, you know, might have workaholic tendencies or may over-identify who they are with their work. And so for me, the story I rewrote was my life is about so much more than my work. And, you know, my identity expanded as a result of of burnout. So for me, it was a chance to see myself, see a much bigger picture of who I was and what I had to offer the world and to think about what I really wanted to create for myself. Because part of why I burned out was, and I think a lot of people may identify with this, it's not just around long hours and high demands. It's also that you may not derive meaning anymore from your work. So I had accomplished everything I set out to in my corporate career and I accomplished it all. And I just felt empty inside. I didn't feel like any of it mattered. It was like, check, I did it. And so, yeah, it gave me a chance to redefine how I wanted my life to look. And I did a total pivot. I mean, my life just looks completely like it couldn't be any different than it was four years ago. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. Yeah. You sort of prompted a good segue here, which is organizationally. So let's say there's a a leader listening to this who's not Mm -hmm. burned out themselves, but who's leading other people. How do they build an environment that catches burnout before it happens and and lead effectively so that their people stay mentally strong and, and healthy? Yeah. For leaders who are listening to this, that's such a great question. Um, I would say, you know, come back to what I shared earlier. Two of the biggest things that you can do for your people are to be checking in with them on their workload and the amount of control. So be thinking about your team. Do they feel like they have a doable amount of work? And do they feel like they have control 
over their job and have some kind of say in how things are going for them, if that makes sense. So, you know, reducing demands where where necessary and increasing control are really important and just making sure that people have recognition too. What I would say is in terms of just practical, okay, that's great. But what does that look like specifically? And an example I would give, and this comes from Jen Fisher, who's the chief well-being officer at Deloitte, which I think is super cool that they have a chief well-being officer. And I went to a workplace well-being conference where she talked and I loved what she had to say. She said, everyone in an organization owns well-being, not just HR. And she said, every employee, every leader owns well-being. And so for leaders who are listening to this, who have a team, I would say, sit down with your team and facilitate a conversation with them around what does each person on that team need to have well-being at work? So, and it may look different for each person on the team. And because, and I think the other thing is just modeling it too. So over and over again, we're hearing in the research that people need to see, it's not enough for a leader to tell your people, you can leave at X time, right? Or I want, I don't want you to be overworking or overloaded. They need to see their leader demonstrating the same behaviors. Otherwise, they're going to look at it and think, oh, I need to be replying to emails at nine o'clock at night. Oh, I need to be working on the weekend. So I think it's, so I guess to summarize two things, you know, lead by example, be someone who's exhibiting well-being behaviors to your people and to create an environment where there can be an open, honest conversation about it and where everybody has a chance to talk about what it looks like for them. Because one person might really need to leave early to go get their kids. Another person might really need to get a workout in at lunchtime for them to come back to work focused and energized. So it's it totally depends on the individual. And I think facilitating conversations where people feel like it's out in the open is really helpful for preventing burnout. Well, that goes to a topic that we've talked about a lot on this show, which is psychological safety and and really creating an environment where people feel like they can speak up, express how they're feeling, express what they need and express their ideas. And they're not going to, you know, judged or critiqued or injured in some way. It also speaks to Daniel Pink's book, Drive, and what actually motivates us, right? Mastery, autonomy, and purpose is what really motivates people. And to your point, like, do you have autonomy? And as people, especially as people progress in their careers, you know, at the beginning, I think you can deal with a lack of autonomy as you help people build mastery, right? Like you're showing them how to do the thing that they need to do. And so you can sort of limit the autonomy a little bit, but as they get better at it, you got to give them some autonomy to do the job, to do the things that you've asked them to do. And I love that suggestion of asking people, you know, do you feel like you have control? Do you feel like you have some autonomy to do the job you wait, the way you want to do it? Do you have some control over where you're going? I think those are powerful. And not only do they stop burnout, they actually increase motivation. <laughs> so, you know, it's not like you just bring people back to baseline. You're actually you're actually ramping them up and and making them better and more productive by asking those questions and restructuring the way that they do their work. It's a really great point and there are people who burn out but don't exhibit exhaustion. Some people burn out simply on the dimension of lack of engagement because they don't feel like they have any control over the job they're doing. 
and it's yeah. really demoralizing and demotivating for people. So, you know, noticing if people are making a request to shift uh, what they're working on and in a way that would be more fulfilling is, is definitely important. So I've got a couple more questions for you here. These are maybe related to what we're talking about with burnout, but they, they may, they don't have to be. So what do you believe about people or business that might be contrarian to how the rest of the world views things? Hmm. And that could be about burnout. You know, is there anything mm-hmm. that is sort of conventional wisdom that you're like, eh, I don't think so. I mean, I, I'm really encouraged by the level of conversation that's happening in the past few years around calling out the, the culture of hustle and grind and workaholism and really questioning that and people pointing to there is another way. Hey, like it doesn't have to be that I think what I believe that might be contrarian, you know, I I still think there are a lot of people who don't, who don't believe that it's possible to excel at work and be healthy and have well-being. So I'll share a quote from Dr. Jeffrey Pfeffer, who wrote Dying for a Paycheck. Great book. (laughs) Great title. Really great book. He's a Stanford professor. And he says, we've come to see stress and burnout as as inevitable conditions of work but they are not. We can design jobs and work environments to reduce stress and burnout, and then we would not need to try and remedy the problems that work causes in the first place. So that is what I believe. I believe that you can have healthy high performance. You don't need to choose between I'm going to be outstanding at my work and in my career, and I'm going to be healthy and well. So I would say that, you know, in a nutshell, that's what I believe today. I didn't believe that four or five years ago, but I believe that now. So that's the perspective I'm holding. And, you know, what I said before, that everybody has a role in well-being. I didn't think that when when I was in my corporate work environment. And I wish that I had felt like I had more self-advocacy to speak up and have that be a conversation that was happening. Because I know there were people around me who were burning out too, but nobody was talking about it. Yeah. Um, so those are kind of some of the things that I think are still not everybody's quite there yet. There's still a lot of myths about what makes makes a great worker and what drives great results in a workplace. Yeah. I had a great conversation on here with a gentleman named Andy Reese, who's a mental skills coach for the Cincinnati Reds minor league system. And he was talking about sort of contrarian beliefs as well. And he said, you know, I hate the the saying, you know, embrace the suck or embrace the grind, embrace the hustle, you know, that I can't remember which one he used, but, it, you know, one of those where he's like, no, that to your point, no, that leads to burnout. That leads to low performance, like consistent grind all the time where you're always like redlining leads to terrible performance. And if you really want good performance, like you have to rest and recover and you have to build that into your life in a meaningful way. I was listening to a woman speak that I know here in Chicago, Pamela Meyer, who wrote a book on agility. And what she had said and what I've heard others say is that the capacity you want to be running at on a normal day-to-day basis is about 85%. You you want to be at about 85% because that's where you can really be effective and efficient. It's where you can slow down and think about the things that you're doing. And then 
when something comes up, when an emergency happens, when a big project pops up, you can ramp up an extra 15% to 100% for a short period of time and embrace that stress and embrace that hustle and that grind or whatever, and then come back down to your 85% baseline. That's not going to burn you out. It actually might even charge you up a little bit because you get to really ramp up to your full capacity, but then you come back down and you're able to be effective. And I just, that really stuck with me and just seems intuitively to be a great way to think about how we structure our lives and our work. I love that 85% capacity because it just feels so healthy and realistic. It's like you're not embracing the suck, which is just incredibly demoralizing and not sustainable. But you're also not, I think there's something to be wary of too here. It's not about getting well-being perfect. So it's not about like doing your whole morning routine and getting your daily meditation in and drinking your five green smoothies and you know, like all of that, <laughs> right? Like yeah. that can just lead yeah. to more stress and overwhelm. For sure. Like I, I think what it reminds me of, like with burnout, you don't need another to-do list. I think. And maybe that's something I I believe about burnout that's kind of contrarian is it's not about what you do. It's about how you treat yourself and how you think about yourself and what you believe. So it's really, a lot of it, it's in the mental plane. And yeah, it's not so much about doing all the stuff. It's more about how you're choosing to change how you relate to yourself and how you treat yourself that really matters. Yeah, I I agree. And and one caveat that I will make, because I I think where the embrace the suck, embrace the grind, I think where that comes from is that like be willing to do hard things. I think that is very true and applies to anybody who wants to be successful. Like if if you want to grow and you want to be successful, you have to do hard things. You have to embrace hard things. Yeah. But you don't have to grind yourself down to nothing. I think there's a there's an important distinction there because you don't want, you know, you see other people who turn away from hard things and feel like, oh, anything that's hard is burning me out and it's stressful. And and there's a difference between getting uncomfortable and embracing something that's really difficult, that's going to really challenge you for a period of time and being such a workaholic or, or filling your schedule so much that it actually wears you out. Yeah. Oh my gosh. You are the distinction and nuance king. I love this about you. <laughs> Because these the are podcast. such, yes, this is what I love about listening to your podcast. This is such an important distinction because, yeah, and I think that, you know, to build on what you're saying, it's about the motivation that we have. Am I hustling and grinding because I believe that I have to do this in order to be successful? And it's just sort of like this automatic going through the motions. Or am I really working hard? on something and being persistent, like in dogged pursuit of a goal that really matters to me. Like that's a very different thing. And I think where people burn out is they're in this very hard work without really a a real why behind it. Yeah. And without adequate recovery time. Cause even if we're working on something hard and uncomfortable, we still need, we especially need recovery time. I would say when we're trying to do something that really stretches us, and requires a lot of courage or yeah, newness in what we're doing. But yeah, I couldn't agree more. We need to do hard, uncomfortable things. And, and that's very different from hustling yeah. and grinding. 
Yeah. I think the more hard things we do in life, the more meaning we find in life. Totally. You know, it, it is those hard things where we really have to push ourselves and test our limits that we look back on with the most fondness, right? The, the more we fill our mm-hmm. lives with those, the prouder we become of ourselves, right? The, the more self-esteem, like, you know, that's what builds confidence. So I think that's an important distinction. And I, but, but it isn't, yeah, it's an important distinction to make, you know, and you don't want to fall on either end of the spectrum where you feel like you should never do where any hard thing is going to create burnout or where doing hard things without any recovery is the way that you have to go. You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. in the middle. Yeah. I think the best, you know, honestly, when I think about like, what do I need to be the best version of myself? Yeah. It's like a nice balance. I think this balance between pursuing things that are hard stretch goals and that require persistence and effort, but also building in, you know, being someone who also is like building in the recovery periods and the rest and the spaciousness to be able to pursue those. So I think a lot of it comes down to just balancing and being able to shift into both of those skills. I think each of those is a skill set. I agree. Yeah. Recovery is definitely a skill set. It is. It is. What are you sick of talking about? Oh man. I, my, one of my biggest triggers or where I just get really irked is in, especially in the burnout space is like, kind of like tips and tricks. Like there are no tips and tricks for burnout. Um, it's really serious and severe. And so, yeah, I'm just, I don't, yeah, I don't want to talk about, yeah, the, I, I, I would say it's not so much what I'm sick of talking about, but what I'm of reading about in the space of burnout perhaps is, yeah, there's no quick fix. It's usually years in the making and it can take that long to undo it. I'm trying to think, is there any, what else am I sick of talking about? Um, balance. I think like work-life balance, there's like, I think we need to be beyond that conversation. It's not about work-life balance. I think we should just throw that, throw that out. Well, to your point earlier, because you were saying like you, when you feel balanced, right. But feeling balanced, isn't this like 50, 50 thing, No, right. It's, it's whatever you need to stay fresh. So it's the balance between activity and recovery that you need to be outperforming. And it's a a balance. It's different for everybody. That's right. And I think when people hold work life balance, they're holding two different silos that are pretty distinct. It's almost like there's a scarcity mindset when I hear most people talk about it, like they can be in one, but not the other, or one comes at the, at the cost or the trade-off of the other. And that's just not true. That's a story and a perspective we choose to tell ourselves. And so it's, how can I be looking to integrate, integrate the two and be bringing a healthy, the approach wherever I am in the flow of life, whether it happens to be the bucket called work or the bucket called life or something else. I mean, it's all life. It's all life. And work is just yeah. a wedge in that pizza pie. <laughs> hey, amen. Amen, sister. I agree with you. Last question. Uh, second to last question. What in your mind is the purpose of business? I think that the purpose of business is to live out your calling and to help other people through your zone of genius. That is my own personal response. I think that's a wonderful response and it's something we could all aspire to. It's all about efficiency, like doing what you do best in a way that is most uplifting and life-giving to people in the world around you. Like what more could we hope for? 
talking about like living a life of meaning. I mean, I really think that's the goal of business for me, for me now <laughs> in my life. Right. Well, good. Okay. This is the last question. Uh, where can people find out more about you and your work or reach out to you if they are listening to this going, dear God, this is speaking to me. I need some help. Yes. If people want to connect with me and become part of my community, you can find me on my website, delightfulmovementcoaching.com. And I also do put out an email newsletter. So if you want to sign up and hear more from me, that's that's one way to connect with me. I am also on LinkedIn at Caitlin Simpson Lyons. And I am on Instagram. And my handle there is at Delightful Movement. And I share a lot more behind the scenes fun stuff there. And um, I also run programs on play and fun. So that's Instagram is where I share a lot of the more colorful photo video content. Well, and now that you say that, I feel guilty because we've been talking about all these downer topics, but I do think a big remedy to a lot of this is more play, more (laughs) fun and um, Whatever that means to you, you know, any way that you play, uh, you know, I probably play differently than you play, but ever, whatever is fun and just feels like free, open play, you know, really has a big impact. It really is. And play is a form of engage, like true engagement. You know, if you're in burnout and you're feeling disengagement, you know, and I, you know, I didn't say this earlier, but I have a program, a coaching program called Restoration, which helps people recover from burnout. And, you know, there's a specific process I take people through, starting with disconnect and rest and re-energizing. And then once people have filled their energy bucket back up, the last part of the process is fun and play. Um, Because it's hard to have fun and play when you're burned out. You need energy to play and engage in life, but it's a really crucial part of the process. And I think for people who are burned out and feeling apathetic and just like life doesn't taste good anymore. Remembering what you love to do for fun. And often like for people, it helps to think back to their childhood, what you did for fun as a kid and recreating that in your life now is just so energizing and often sets people back on the track of meaning and engagement in life. So highly recommend it. I think of play and I think of flow too, right? Because flow is such totally. a restorative state. And so actually I had a guest on Diane Allen who yeah. uh, was the concert master for symphony orchestra. And she talks about how to find your, your flow strategy to get into flow. And so, mm-hmm. you know, any opportunity to find things that get you into flow really are, uh, recovery techniques. You know, that is part of that recovery. That was a fabulous podcast. And it's interesting. I think we can find flow in work and outside of work. And I think Mm -hmm. play is the space we find flow that doesn't have a productive outcome. It's like that purposeless, like that sense of just, you're losing all sense of time and you're just kind of really present in the moment. So finding like, what are the things that activate that in you is really helpful for people who are in burnout. So yeah, particularly movement. I think most people if you're wondering, well, what can I do for fun or play that's easy? Movement is one of the things. Find some way to move your body that feels fun to you, whether it's going to the park and swinging on the swing set or picking up a tennis racket or going for a swim or I don't know, maybe trying paddle boarding for the first time. Like anything you can do to move your body is going to signal to your brain everything's okay. We're safe. Chill. Just that is a really great. nice way to. <laughs> That is a 
That is a great way to end this. You can go do your, is it Savasana where you lay on the floor for three minutes and do go. some breathing? Yeah. Everybody can go do, do that. Savasana. Yeah. Uh, Caitlin, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, this has been awesome. This is jam packed uh, with education and practical information for people. So I uh, can't wait to share this. Really appreciate you coming out. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Hey folks, one last thing before you go. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Thanks for coming. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.